Have you ever heard something described as being a study in contrast? You ever hear that term? Uh, it's usually it's used to describe two things or two people or a situation where two things are like the, uh, the perfect opposite or, or a very stark difference between this person and that person. As a student of history, an old history teacher, I used to study the, the Civil War. I used to like to read the, uh, about the Civil War. And at, at the end of the Civil War, there was a study in contrast, something that's always described that way. In fact, don't do it now. But if you Google a study in contrast, you won't have to look very far to find even pictures of the meeting that ended the Civil War at Appomattox Courthouse. And the, the study in contrast was between General Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant. You know, Lee was, you know, he appeared, even though he was exhausted and defeated, appeared as a courtly, aristocratic gentleman should. His posture was straight, everything was pressed and shined, and the sword and the whole nine yards. And in walks Sam Grant who appeared as the rough Westerner from working class roots uh, might. He was frumpy and wrinkly, and he had muddy boots that tracked into this house. And that's often been called a study in contrast because multiple people who were there made note. Well, I've called this sermon a study in contrast because Jesus wants there to be that kind of contrast between you and me and the other people in this story, the scribes and Pharisees. Today, we begin the last public sermon of Jesus' life. And it's really interesting to know what the topic is. If you were to guess, right, if I had just asked you before, when you walked in here, Knowing it was his last public sermon, everything else Jesus will, will teach and preach in the rest of Matthew's private teaching. If you were to guess, what would Jesus make the topic of his last public sermon? What would you guess? Would he make a gospel presentation? Would he pull things out of the Old Testament that pointed to him as being the Messiah? The time for all that's done. He doesn't do those things. From now on, that stuff will be up to his disciples and those he, that would come after his disciples, other followers of Jesus like us. It's, it's our job to tell people that Jesus was the Messiah and to share the gospel. Today in Jesus' last sermon, here's what he's going to do. He's going to point at the scribes and Pharisees and tell people, don't be like that. He's going to say, today, today's part that we're going to learn, here's some reasons, what, here's some things they do dead wrong. As conservative leaders who think their teaching is based on the Bible, don't be like them. Instead, be sort of the opposite. That's today's sermon. And the next week, in the second part of the sermon, he's going to pronounce woe, woes or judgments on these guys because they are the way they are. Sort of the bad news for us is it's really easy to make the same kind of mistakes that Jesus called these guys out for making. Even as Christians in 2019, 
It's easy to fall into the same patterns and bad ideas that these guys fell into. Let's read our passage today. It's the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 23. If you want to grab a a pew Bible from underneath the chair in front of you, it's on page 984, so you can find that quickly, 984. This is the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Click, baby. Come on. Sam, you're on call here today. Verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by men, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader or teacher, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. There's our passage, Jesus sets up his teaching in the first three verses where Matthew, uh, Matthew lets us know that there's a change in audience. If you've been here for a while, the last nine sermons Jesus has had uh, as his audience, different groups of religious leaders. That's who he's been talking to. And there's a significant change at the beginning of chapter 23. Then Jesus said, to whom? Who's he talking to today? to the crowds and to his disciples. That's important. Jesus is going to be blasting away at the scribes and Pharisees, but not so they will hear it, not so they will know how rotten they are. He wants us to know how rotten they were. He's talking to he's talking to us because there's still hope for us. He's talking to the crowds, anyone who will listen who might become his disciple, and he's talking to his 12 disciples. hoping that we will avoid making the mistakes they make. Verse 2, Jesus says that the experts in the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. i got to explain that or we'll never understand what comes next. Moses' seat was an actual chair in a Jewish synagogue back in the day. Every synagogue had a chair up front where the, nearby where the scrolls were kept. And they did teaching differently than we do. In the first century Near East, the teacher sat and everybody else stood. And we would have saved a lot of money on chairs if we had done things that way. Right? In the first century, the teacher sat. And in the synagogue, if you were going to read the scrolls and teach, guess where you would sit? On the seat of Moses. This is not a presumptive thing. These jerks think they sit on Moses' seat. No, they really did. That's why Jesus can say what he says next. The next half of verse 
is as surprising of a half verse as you will find in the Bible for my money. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. All right, they sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what the scribes and, and Pharisees tell you to do and do it. Now, before we open our Bibles this morning, if I ask you this question, did Jesus ever tell you to pay attention to what the, what the Pharisees said and do it? What would you have answered? I would have said, no way. He couldn't stand those guys. But right here, he says, listen to what they say and take care to do it. Isn't that, a, isn't that a shocker? But we have to take it with what comes before and after. Um, by the way, Jesus was just so fair. He's just so fair and so much not like me and not like us. Here's what I mean. Did Jesus particularly like the scribes and Pharisees? But did he demonize everything they said? Just because they were the bad guys, did he figure out a way to discredit every word that came out of their mouths? No. In fact, he tells his disciples, I don't care who sits up there and reads from the scripture. Listen. Their problem's not with what they said was their authority, the scriptures. Their problem's not what they said even when they read and taught. The problem is they didn't do what they taught. They didn't practice what they preached. Here's Jesus. All right, they sit on Moses' seat, so pay attention when they're up there, but do not do what they do because they do not practice what they teach. This isn't going to be one of the main points of the sermon, but is it possible to know a lot about the Bible and still not live a life that is worth emulating? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Pharisees will not be the last people to make that mistake. And now Jesus starts the teaching proper, so to speak. What Jesus is going to do I think he's going to, he points at the Pharisees and he's going to give us three things in general that they do wrong that he wants us to be the opposite of. Okay? One at a time, we're going to look at those three things. Don't be like the Pharisees. It's really easy to be like them. First one comes in verse four, where he sort of holds up the Pharisees and says about them, they have an erroneous view of ministry. I'll state that more positively for us. Jesus wants us to keep a biblical view of ministry, of what it means to minister. Jesus says it this way. This is verse 4. Their problem is they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on men's shoulders. But the Pharisees themselves, they're not willing to even lift a finger to move them. I think that is a bad view of ministry. The scribes and Pharisees, when Jesus says they, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on men's shoulders, here's what they did. They really did a, a good job of making walking with God seem super, like impossible to do and not at all fun. There's no joy in this. Oh, it's so hard. Right? Because there's the law. The, the stuff that was actually in the scripture, and then they added more and more and more rules. And walking with God 
If you're the, 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 the varsity, uh, I want to say Christians, but they weren't Christian. The varsity uh, God followers were the people who get the closest to following all these rules. And they didn't want to make it seem like everybody could do that. Because kind of the main theme going through all their problems, besides they don't practice what they preach, is this. They just want to feel superior. I say this all the time. Somebody finish this for me. It, remember, it always feels better to feel, it feels better to feel better than somebody else. And they use their position to make themselves feel better. So here's what they do. They put all these rules on people, and then, that's only half their problem, then they have no interest in helping anybody actually pull it off. They don't want to even lift a finger to help somebody do what they claim God wants them to do with their lives. Why? They don't want anybody to achieve at their level of spiritual achievement. Because they want to feel better. They want to feel superior. Biblical Christianity takes place all at the same level. The scribes and, and Pharisees had a, had a pyramid structure in their brain of how religion worked. And the real elites, the varsity team, is at the top of this pyramid and they don't want to make room for anybody else. Biblical Christianity doesn't work like that. It's not what Christian ministry looks like. Paul tell, told us what Christian ministry should look like. And leaders, it's not that there's not authority in a church. It's not that there's not a leadership structure. But those leaders are not superior. They're not on some different strata. They're not more holy or more anything else. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul was telling the church at Ephesus why God gave leaders to the church. Paul says it this way, he that's God. God gave the church some as apostles and some as prophets to get the church started. And God gave some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. And there's your church uh, leadership, at least in that, in that passage. But what are they given to the church for? To be the varsity? To be the A-team? To be the pinnacle? No, their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. According to Paul, who does the work of ministry? Who are the ministers in a church? Everybody. And a leader is somebody in the trenches with people helping them minister to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Till we all attain to the same knowledge of God. Till we're all mature people. Till we all attain the measure of Christ's full status. See, biblical Christianity, everybody's on the same level, helping one another achieve, not trying to uh, stand out and be at the, at the top of some pyramid structure that's just foreign to the church. So their first problem the Pharisees have, a, have an erroneous view of ministry. Jesus wants us to have a biblical view of ministry. I shouldn't be threatened by someone else's like, achievement. I should want that. The second problem that the, the Pharisees have is they have a, an erroneous view of righteousness. 
So Jesus wants us to keep a biblical view of righteousness. Verse 5, we read Jesus say this. They, that's the scribes and Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by people. For they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. Uh, according to Jesus, did the scribes and Pharisees, did they ever do any good stuff? Or were they all pure evil all the time? Just from that verse, we can tell they did good stuff. But why and when did they do good stuff? They did good stuff. Why? To be seen doing good stuff. And when? When people were watching. You know why someone does good deeds when people are watching? Because they have a bad view of what it means to be righteous. Every religion in the world, in my opinion, save for biblical Christianity, measures righteousness in an unbiblical manner. Righteousness is measured this way. You keep score personally. Uh, on one side, there's all the naughty things you're not supposed to do. And there's a list of good things you should do. And your righteousness quotient, your righteousness mass index, comes from how good are you at not doing these things? How good are you at pulling off these things? And then there's some sort of standard that the righteous people are the ones who sin a few number of sins and do a, a, a big number of good things. And almost always, or literally always, it turns into comparing my righteousness quotient that I feel like I have to other people. And in most religions in the world, whoever gets over whatever bar that is, that's who God uh, will let into heaven or give his own planet or whatever. Uh, reincarnate you as something better. Whatever your idea of paradise is, that's who gets in. It's not to be that way with us. Jesus just gives one example of the scribes and Pharisees here. He gives other examples other places. He talks about the way they give to be seen by other people. The way they pray to be heard by other people. Here, he says they, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. This is not a Pharisee. This is not a guy in costume. This is a modern Jewish man. And he is wearing two styles of phylactery. There's one right there. Actually, this person, he was a unicorn and he got dehorned when they vaccinated him. And that's, what, that's what's left. It's just a Nebraska joke right there. If you're listening to this on the internet, trust me, uh, it made sense in Nebraska. No, this is it's a phylactery. See all this stuff on his forearm down here? Can you see that square right there? There's another one. Here's where that comes from. There's places in the Old Testament, in the law, where Moses said things like this uh, about God's word, the law. Bind it on your forehead. Tie it to your wrist or your hand. Now what Moses, was, what Moses meant was we should always have God's word in our brain and we should do it. Our hands are the symbol of doing it. God's word, not just knowing it, but knowing it and doing it. We can't do it if we don't know it. But if we know it and don't do it, it doesn't do any good. So keep it on your head. Keep it in what you do. And we have no evidence that anybody wore these things like back in Moses' day. But by Jesus' day, they did. And some still do. 
Um, the other thing, I think this will back up for me. Yeah. So they make their phylacteries wide and they make their tassels long. This, his scarf is not coming apart here. That is, that's the tassel. That was commanded by the law. Um, Israelite men had to wear tassels on the edge of their cloaks. Jesus wore these, and we know that because remember the story of the, the woman with the bleeding issue who snuck up behind Jesus? She grabbed the, the hem of his cloak. She grabbed his ta the tassel. It was the symbol of God's holiness. They were supposed to wear that. So, but wearing these things weren't the problem, especially the tassel. The problem is, Jesus said, these guys make their tassels, excuse me, their, their phylacteries wide. These leather pouches were, you know, great big ones and their tassels super long. Why? So that when you saw them coming down the street, you would go, oh man, he's really serious about God. Look at that. I mean, you could fit the whole book of Deuteronomy in his phylactery. He must really be on the A-team. That's what they're after. They're not really uh, passionate about the holiness of God. They're passionate about other people thinking they're passionate about the holiness of God. And there's a difference. They have this view of righteousness that it's comparative. And biblical Christianity is different. The gospel says you cannot measure righteousness the way every other religion in the world does it. Don't measure righteousness based on counting the number of sins you do or don't sin, counting the number of good things you do or don't do. That doesn't work. Why? Because God doesn't care about sin anymore? No. Paul would say, may it never be. Sin still angers God and grieves the Holy Spirit that lives within us. What, God doesn't care about good works? No. He does. Paul said, you were saved if you're saved for what? Good works. He's got stuff he wants you to be doing. He just says, you can't measure your righteousness based on how well you're doing right now today in avoiding sin and being about those good works he wants you to be about you know why? Do you know why? Because we have absolutely zero chance of being, of moving the righteousness needle even a millimeter according to the standard that actually counts. Logically speaking, are there people that sin less than other people? Has to be. Are there people that do more good deeds than other people? Have to be. But before God, the person who's alive on earth right now, whoever he or she is who has sinned the fewest number of sins and done the, done the most pieces of good work, if they do not know Christ as Savior, are they any closer to eternal life and real righteousness now than the worst abusive addict murderer on the planet? Are they? According to the Bible, no. No. Biblical Christianity says the only kind of righteousness that does any good has to be given. The, the prophet Isaiah famously said it this way. God through Isaiah said this. All our righteousness is like what? Let me say it out loud. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. How much of our righteousness is like garbage? 
all before God if I want to be good enough to get into heaven. And I have to be. Pay attention. The Bible is very clear. Only the righteous get into heaven. That's the only ones who are getting in. But how do I become righteous? When God says, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, so much garbage. You might have a bigger pile of filthy rags than I do. I might have a bigger pile of filthy rags than he does. But before God, more garbage is, does what for us? We can't be good enough to be considered righteous by God. We can't. Why we depend on as Christians the greatest off that has ever happened. It happened at the cross. Here's why Jesus went to the cross. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. When he went to the cross, if you've believed in him, your sin, he became your sin. It's called the, the doctrine of imputation. Your sin was imputed onto him. And God fired both barrels of his wrath onto Jesus. The wrath your sins deserve. Then the other half of the trade-off happens when you come to believe that that's what Jesus was doing. His righteousness gets gifted to you, given to you. Imputed righteousness. Only the righteous get into heaven. How many, the Bible tells us how many people are righteous based on their own. How many? There is no one righteous, not even one. Tells us that three times. When you believe in Jesus, here's what God does. I compare it to a personnel file. You ever have a job where you have a personnel file? Here's what God does. When you believe on Jesus, he takes your personnel file out. Every sin you've sinned, every time you fail to do the right thing, every mean word you have uttered, every act of commission, omission, all of it, and he burns it. And then he takes the track record of Jesus Christ, his personnel file, every sin he never sinned, every good and wonderful thing he did, and he takes it and he sticks it in your personnel file. And when it comes time to judge you, all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now here's what that does for the Christian. Besides gets us into heaven, which is plenty. <laughs> it takes us off, out of that game of comparing my level of righteousness to your level of righteousness. Because if you and I, both saved, redeemed Christians, if we bear the righteousness of Christ, which righteousness do you want to be scored on? Jesus's or yours? Right? So if, as, as a Christian, I can stop comparing my righteousness to yours or that person's righteousness to that person's righteousness and trying to decide who's on the varsity and who's on the JV. Does that mean I no longer care about sin because we all bear Jesus' righteousness? No! You know what? We just read that Paul said what ministry is? Helping all of us mature in Christ. We all want to sin less this year than we sinned last year. I want to do more good stuff than he wants me to do this year than I did last year. I just understand before God, it's not the difference in my eternity because I've got Jesus' track record in my personnel file. And so does every other person who believes. And we want to grow together. And we want to help one another serve and minister and achieve. 
But it's not our righteousness that matters, it's his. Does that make sense? So they have a, they have a bad view of ministry because they have a bad view of righteous, righteousness. They want to appear to be at the pinnacle, on the varsity, on the A-team. And because those two things are true about them, or maybe this is the reason those two things are true about them, I can't decide. Their last problem comes in the rest of the whole passage where Jesus tells us that the Pharisees, Pharisees have an erroneous view of greatness. He wants us to keep a biblical view of greatness. What Jesus says here in verse 6, the Pharisees, they love the place of honor at banquets. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the elaborate greetings in the marketplaces. First century Near East, if somebody had an official title and you were below that, you had to uh, greet them with their title. And they liked that. Because it made them feel great. It's important. What good is it going to do me if I've got all of this position and all of this righteousness if nobody recognizes it? Because their righteousness is comparative, what they live for is the recognition. I not only want to be on the A-team, I want you to know it. A couple things about these titles. What Jesus is saying don't be like is don't, um, don't have a desire for your greatness to come from other people's recognition of that. It's not so much about the titles. And here's how I know. For time's sake, I won't. We could go through the New Testament and see all of these titles used in a biblical way, including Father. The Apostle Paul called Timothy and Titus his what? His sons in the faith. Paul called himself their spiritual father. Um, do not, uh, you're not to be called teacher, verse 10 says. Right? We have teachers here. Some of you can read that and go, oh my gosh. I've been doing this wrong for 20-some years. People call me teacher all day long. No, that's not, a, that's not a problem. The problem is wanting to get my sense of greatness from recognition of some special title from other places. This is one reason why I've struggled with what, what I should ask people to call me or people want to know, what should we call you? You know you can call me? Matt works. That's what my mama called me. She called me Matthew, but I don't use that very much. She's my mama. She can do that. Um, the, uh, in our church, we call this position pastor. That's not, that's not horribly biblical, you know? You know the only person in the New Testament that's called by the word for pastor is Jesus himself? <laughs> it's a spiritual gift, shepherding. Um, it's never used as a title, well, we got to call me something, right? So you can tell people who are, like teaching elder Matt doesn't sound very good. I mean, that's what I really am. I'm the elder that spends most of my time preparing to teach, but that doesn't have much of a ring to it. Um, minister, I grew up in a church that we called this position minister. Anybody, have, anybody grew up in a church where you had the minister? I don't like that one either. Why? Who's supposed to be doing, who's supposed to be the minister's? All of us, equally. I don't get bent out of shape if your church or somebody's church still calls it that because I'm not crazy about pastor, but we got to call me something. Where we're doing this wrong is if I desire, 
like I, I get part of my like human greatness from the position. The, the one that really does chafe me a little bit, reverend I don't like, because I think that one flies in the face of this one. Because um, it comes from the word to be revered. And I, don't, I certainly don't want you revering me. Okay? But again, if somebody just uses it at a tit- like a, as a title like we use pastor, I don't correct anybody or get bent out of shape by it. Um, again, the main idea here is in the church, is greatness measured in the number of people below you on the organizational chart? Or are we all equals as siblings? We're all equals, equals as siblings. Don't desire these titles and these greetings and the best seats and, the, and, and the, all that stuff. Show your equality. I've heard uh, of seminary professors, PhDs. At seminary, they require their students as standard protocol to call them professor or doctor. But when they go to church, they don't let people call them that. Just call me by my name here. Right? At school... Maybe it's different sign of respect. Okay. Some of these things up. <coughs> Jesus points out the Pharisees as examples of what is wrong. He wants us to be different. And he taught us today, keep a biblical view of ministry where we're all in the trenches helping everybody mature, grow. Yes, that includes sin less this year than I did last year, do more good things than I did last month. That's all that stuff is, is growth, but it, has, it does not move my righteousness needle in God's eyes because I bear the blindingly white righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we certainly don't want to fall into the trap of trying to measure our greatness based on a bad view of ministry or righteousness. We should be different. And here's where Jesus says this from the, the positive light. <coughs> Verse 11, he says, The greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There's something really cool going on here. Jesus, you want to be great? It's not how many people are underneath you on some chart. It's how many people do you serve? Do you equip? How many people do you strengthen? Do you encourage? How many people do you exhort or maybe even rebuke at the right times? And then he says something that hey, this is a promise from the Lord Jesus. Whoever doesn't get this, Whoever works on earth to exalt himself or herself and be seen and be noticed, they are going to be humbled. Certainly, if no, if no other time, when they stand before the Lord and they find out all that stuff was for loss. Then he says, whoever gets this, whoever humbles himself and sees every, all other Christians as equally righteous and, and does what he's been teaching us to do, that person someday will be exalted. If nowhere else, when that person stands before the Lord and they say, well, and he says, well done, good and faithful. What? Servant. Servant. And you know what? We can see this happen like in real life on earth. 
I stepped on this last week, but I want to say it again. This is why a lot of our ministry efforts, we start them and quit. You know why? Because what we really want is what the, what the Pharisees were after in our hearts, the natural parts of us. What we want is to be noticed. What we want is to be appreciated. What we want is to be a notch up on you know, greatness and we want to seem better. It, feels, it always feels better to, be, to feel better. But we're Christians. So what we do is we try some kind of ministry or service. You know why? We're hoping it will make me feel like I want to feel. But guess what happens when you try on real life ministry for a while? Sometimes it don't feel very good. People start taking shots at you. They start complaining. Even if you do it for the right reasons, oh, he thinks he's better than that. Oh, he, she thinks she is. Oh, I can't hang out. She thinks she, right? All that stuff. The complaint department is longer than the encouragement department. And if I got into that to exalt myself, I'm out. But the opposite of that happens to the person who gets this and hangs in there and serves, right? And just serves and serves and just wants Jesus to be made great and understands, I know these people I'm helping, they're a mess, but they have the same righteousness I do. Or, so as a Christian in ministry, and we're all supposed to be in ministry, here's how we see people. That's either somebody who bears the righteousness of Christ and I want to help them mature in that, or it's someone that doesn't bear the righteousness of Christ and I sure want them to. That's the only kind of people there are. And somebody who gets that and humbles himself, and I don't want to be great, and I don't need to be noticed, but I want to serve and serve and serve, and I want this person to achieve, and I want them to grow. Then all of a sudden, you see this happen. Somebody's like, man, you know, I didn't think Lori was going to be in church today, so I was going to talk about her behind her back, but she's here. Lori, Lori's been teaching Sunday school for like 300 years in this church. Right? It's like 30-some years. We don't have a statue of her or nothing. Right? But then every once in a while, I hear somebody say, or, or we're looking for a Sunday school teacher, and we're like, oh, man, we're thankful. And Tina just got done with the same sort of term. Like, man, just every week, faithfulness, no appreciation, no pay, no anything. Right? And someone who has, can be an example of someone who has humbled themselves gets exalted. But you've got to be in it for the right reasons because it might take 30 years. It might take the rest of your life. You may never hear it on this earth. Will it be worth it? You bet your life it will be. You bet your life it will be. Keep a biblical view of ministry, what it's for, who it's for. Keep a biblical view of righteousness that we either, there's two kinds of people those who bear the righteousness of Christ and those who don't. We should want to help the former grow and the latter get. And the only greatness we should be worried about is exalting the name of our Lord Jesus, the Great One. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the negative example of the Pharisees. God, it is so easy for us to fall into these same traps. God, help us to grow in the righteousness we bear as believers, help us to help uh, those who don't know you as Savior to, to, to know you.
that they might bear your righteousness, which is the only way to appear righteous, good enough before you. Help us to serve and minister humbly, Lord, that your name might be made great, trusting that if nothing else, uh, someday because of what you have done in us, uh, there will be an exaltation at the judgment. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.